and welcome to another Scots We Hate podcast. And today I'm joined by Chris Thompson, the founder and frontman of The Bathers. Hello, Chris. Good evening, Aston. Nice to see you. And nice to see you too. Um, so for people that don't know uh, The Bathers, I would say not just a Glasgow band, but arguably the Glasgow band. We'll talk a bit more about the kind of importance of the city and your music perhaps <laughs> later. But we're... we're um, Initially going to talk about the Marina trilogy, which has just been remastered and re-released on uh, vinyl and other formats as well. So can you tell us a little bit about those three albums? Um, Yeah, obviously they originally came out in the mid to late 90s on Marina. um, And they've been out of print for a long, long time. And the more I've got back into working and building up my own Sort of studio here, um, and the vinyl renaissance has been taking place. Yeah. I thought it'd be fantastic to get these albums back out. I think they stand up. And the more I looked at what we had in the way of the master tapes um, and various mixes and versions, I decided I wanted to do a few tweaks and what have you, and uh, as you do. And so I think particularly in the case of Kevin Go Baby, I discovered that the the original album had been recorded on the, the ADAP format and the tapes in the intervening years had not been stored well. They were, mm-hmm. um, they, you damp got to them basically. So kind of turning that to my advantage, I just decided to to work with whatever mixes I could find or various versions I had, had um, here. And then I did I did a few new vocals and things, so it's a bit of a, a bit of a mixed bag, and I can't even be sure when I listen to it myself now what I did when, if you know what I mean. It was just the important thing was to serve the set of songs as best I could. There were certain things about the original albums I didn't think were as good as they could be. You know, is it that type of that, that once that process took hold, what might have taken me a week or two, of course, took me months probably per album yeah. uh, but it was great fun to sort of as close as I'm going to get I think to get in a wee time machine going back to being my 30 something self or whatever it was been re-inhabit those songs and perform them I mean I really loved the when I did replace a vocal I mean a, an example that would come to mind is Venice Shoes say the opening track of Lagoon Blues I don't think the casual listener would necessarily say hang on that wasn't done yeah, back in the early nineties, you know, I was kind of it's me, and I was amazed at how comfortable it felt to be back. I I, I think I really giving a slightly enhanced performance of the of the songs. It was it was really great fun, and if, as these things tend to do, it absorbed an immense amount of time, which in the most lovely way. Uh-huh. And so that will led us to. Uh-huh. So go ahead, Alistair. Well, I was just going to say I hadn't thought about it being a kind of almost time capsule for you going back and, and revisiting these songs. How did you feel about doing that? Well, it's it wonderful. It's kind of like getting a, a bit of a second bite of the cherry. I mean, whatever audience they had, it was, it was always it was definitely on the the cultish sort of side of things. And, and there were never mainstream huge records, not as if hundreds of thousands of people owned them. So it was a chance to... Um, kind of, as I say, enhance them and make them the very best that I felt they could be. Because I always felt the songs were, were very, very strong. The, I think I managed to keep all, the, a lot of individual 
performances were there that have been kept. So kept the best of, you know, best of the lot and just in hand, just adding mainly my own vocals. There was a couple of tracks. Again, Kevin Grove Baby as, a, as an album, probably more on there has been changed than any other right. because of the damage to the tapes. But on two, I think a couple of, well, at least yeah, a couple of tracks on that, they... I brought in a slightly bigger string section on the the fragrance remain in remains insane. Uh, we did we worked with the strings in the Glasgow City Halls, which is just a lovely room, and that just kind of you know it was added in with some of the original elements and just seemed to take it to yet another level. You know, a song I'd always loved and very fond of it. But uh, so yeah, it's kind of hopefully you know I've had one or two people who, who loved it twenty five years ago or something, oh, you've changed this. But very few, um, I'm happy to say, most people just, you know, like it just as much or it, it seems to be getting a new a new set of listeners as well, which is always part of the, the idea behind it. Were they ever released on vinyl in the 90s? No, they weren't at all. You know, as when you look back at those strange times, around where vinyl yeah. was seen as the dinosaur, the absolute, you know, was on its... And uh, the thing that was funny, I mean, I, I can think of a lot of our releases. I think the um, Sweet Deceit, the second Bathers album, was the last one released on vinyl. And the very first Bathers album was at the cusp of where CD wasn't quite established enough. And vi- it was released on vinyl and cassette, but no CD. So there's these kind of bizarre things that you can chart the ebb and flow of the various formats. But yeah, vinyl was regarded as you know, absolutely you know, a completely irrelevant for- format. So it's a fantastic thing that it's back because it does make just such a lovely artifact. You know, I think it's it's more special. I know I like going to place the record down, all that sort of stuff. It's more meaningful than engaging with about roughly 20 minutes per side. It's a great thing. Uh, because I was thinking um, if ever albums were perfect to be put out on vinyl it is these three uh, albums because it's not just the songs themselves but the way that mm-hmm. uh, they look photography I mean it was almost it was always of a very high standard with the bathers um, yeah. and so yeah. to get it you know almost like big size you know that rather than just on a CD seems the right yeah thing. it really it really yeah to do justice to the fantastic artwork that Stefan at Marina Records put together it's just beautiful to see it, you know, really well printed and and the the, the full LP size was, was absolutely fantastic and you know, really a real thrill. I mean that's another element of the the reevaluating, re rejigging the records was of course I think Lagoon Blues ran to as close to seventy minutes, which was the downside of the C D era where you, you could, so you, you did. And I think actually the albums are better for being streamlined towards the vinyl. I was trying to desperately dig it down to the 20 minutes or less, you know, Lynn record style, but that, that was impossible. So it was fine, I think roughly 22 minutes aside. And, you know, the mastering engineers have done a great job to make to make it sound good on vinyl at that length. It's true. I think that was one of the, the downsides of CD. It was like, well, you can get this to between 70 yeah. and 90 minutes. So let's do it. And yeah, yeah it didn't always help. Yeah. Sometimes it got a bit excessive at times. <laughs> Um, so, for people that uh, don't know, the three albums are Lagoon Blues, Sunpowder, and Kelvin Grove Baby, and mm-hmm. together we're calling it the Marine. 
trilogy. Um, and Marina Records, they were really important in my life because I bought so many of her things. But some people won't know about Marina. And they're, they're, they're not their normal record label, if there is such a thing. That's pretty true. I mean, I first met Stefan and Frank. They, they, they are and, and still are active as, as journalists and um, Stefan design as well. But they came to London to interview a band I was in the, at the time called Bloomsday and these two German guys turned up at the Island Records HQ and they, they were sort of, yeah, they were quite excited with the Bloomsday thing, but really what they wanted to talk to me about was Friends again. My my previous band, they'd been wow. big fans. And um, yeah, we kind, of, we kind of hit it off then and then maybe a year or two down the line, I think, I think they just said, look, we're thinking of starting this label. I said, oh, that, that's, that's interesting. I've just... I'm working on this album called Lagoon Blues. I'm, you know, pretty much, would you like to hear it? And they were like, absolutely. And it just very quickly snowballed from there. And they, as you know, they, they got involved with a lot of Scottish acts, which has been fantastic. So it was a really great relationship between Hamburg, where they're based, and the, the Scottish scene. Yeah, so, so you were the kind of initial link, because I often wondered where that connection was made between these guys from uh, yeah. Germany and particularly, it seemed to me, a lot of Glasgow musicians, but Scottish musicians in general. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah, I, I'm not sure how some of the... I think it must have been one of the very first connections. I mean, I know they... I, I think Lagoon Blues was the very second release on the label. There was a release by a band called Gazelle. Mm-hmm. So there must, have been, there must have been another connection going on that I'm not particularly aware of. Um, but yeah, we were we were pretty much in there. Um, and then people like Davy Scott with the Pearl Fishers came on board very quickly. Douglas McIntyre's band, the Sugar Town, and um, Cowboy Mouth, all sorts of things had had great releases on the label. Yeah, so and it seemed to happen very quickly. There was a lot of stuff coming. Uh, <laughs> and a lot of um, Scottish musicians who had been like a couple of the guys from Orange Juice. I think Roddy Frame had an album out with them as well. Think it's did, worth, yeah. For people who don't know, it's worth um, you know checking out Marina Records, just looking at their back catalogue. Oh, yeah, it's a phenomenal amount of stuff. Yeah, James Kirk, as you say, the, the Orange Juice Connection. Yeah, phenomenal uh, back catalogue. And it seemed, you're probably aware that they, they were talking about calling it a day. Mm. A couple of years ago, there was a sort of farewell, 25-year farewell concert as part of Celtic Connections. Yeah. Was that was supposed to be the swan song, but I think they've got, a new new lease of life and they feel it's still worth it's, it's very tough as as we all know it's tough for all sorts of independent businesses but i'm so glad that they've uh decided to, to stick in there um in fact i think they've got a lovely compilation coming out uh, in bed with marina which features many many of the bands that we're yeah. we're talking about here that's that's been coming out in vinyl for the first time for record store day i guess that'll be is it next spring or something the next one but yeah, so it's it's brilliant. They're they're sort of back in the saddle, and very you know we the the Marina trilogy. I think what happened there was I think initially spoke to Stefan and said, "Look, I'm working on the the, the multi tracks. I'm going to do the digital platform stuff, but I would love to put it on vinyl. How yeah. would you feel about me using the artwork?" He said, "That's absolutely fantastic. On one condition, I must do it. I don't want any anyone else messing it up. Shall we say is another word to use, but." Um, I said, well, absolutely. And then about an hour later, another email came back saying, you know what, these actually, these are got to be out on Marina. I was like, yeah, let's, let's do it. 
Brilliant. So the Marina trilogy was born from the, the three albums. And we did talk about should we do them as a staggered release, but the closer, it, obviously with this year being so strange with the COVID situation, the, things did get pushed a bit a, back a bit, but we realised that, yeah, the, the, it, feel, it just felt right to put them out together, you know, and make them available at once. And uh, so far so good, and the reception has been really lovely. Well, there's a couple of things there. One, I th- looking at the reviews, it's not just people going, oh, um, remember these records from when we were younger, and going back. They seem to be really being looked at afresh, which is great. Which is it, it is great. I mean, I've always, I'd always hoped I wasn't kidding myself. It's a classic. You feel like you want to make something that's got a bit of staying power, the timeless thing. Um, but yeah, I, th- I, I do detect that. I think people are just, they feel, oh, that, that, that feels, it does feel fresh, you know, and like it, I think it, because we weren't part of any particular fashion or I've always inclined to just try and do my own thing. I've not been particularly uh, commercially minded, and, to say the least. But yeah, it's, it stands, I think it stands up. It stands up, which is great. But the, the other thing is that um, Bathers fans, and I include myself in that, do seem to be very, very loyal. And if you're a Bathers fan, you want everything. You know, you, I can imagine people going... Um, well, let's just get them all. Let's just you get as many as we can. <laughs> because I think it's it's one yeah. of these bands that, as you see, you maybe weren't hugely commercially successful, but they're one of the bands no, that I talk to people and they are into the bathers as well. It's almost like, oh, yeah, okay, you're all right. Yeah. You're one of us. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, no, that's, that's lovely. It, what struck me, I often, my, with my friend Paul Paul McGeekin, we were in Friends Day together as a, a school band, which got signed, did a, did a record and all the rest of it. Similar thing happened there where many, many years later, people keep emerging, say, oh, yeah, friends, and you sort of, decades later, you realise, actually, we were probably closer to actually breaking through and becoming something than, than we had the remotest idea of at the time, which is lovely. So I kind of hang on to that thought. Yeah. But it doesn't really matter, you know, if it's 50 people at a gig or a couple of emails being positive, you just don't know what's hidden out there and I think I've seen some of that coming down the tracks just now that yeah there's a lot of lovely um, sentiment sentiment coming through really positive stuff so yeah it's, and, it's a good one and you spoke about um, the Stefan uh, wanting to make sure that the pictures and the images and the photography was as mm. it should be but it does seem mm. to me that as a band you always had a very strong image in terms of covers um, your style was that something that was important uh, yeah, very much so. Uh, the um, I, think, I remember the first one we, you know, it's become a bit of a museum piece actually. Where I, in the first album cover, it's a very different Glasgow. I mean, that's time machine stuff as well. When I think of wandering about Glasgow Green, just me and the photographer Joe Pelosi, and at that point the Dilton Fountain, which now has been wonderfully restored, yeah. four and a half million quid later, but it would literally, uh, you know, I think there was about two out of the, the dozens of statues in any way intact. Mm. So I was able to climb right into the Dilton Fountain, get quite a striking shot. Um, and, it, you know, it just feels like a sort of bit of a lost Glasgow moment there because it yeah. was a very, very different city, but we were, we were definitely striving to try and do something with that certain aesthetic depth and, and character to it. Um, and then with Sweet Deceit, the cover... I think I, I think I remember saying to the art director, the, 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 the Glasgow boys painting wise we're really breaking out yeah and i remember saying, oh, quite like this guy stephen conroy um maybe we could get him to do paint a cover 
and the art director, the art guy, I think he made a call and was duly told to get lost. But then they quite happily they got um, they got a, a painter in Ashley Pierce, I think was his name, who did a great bit of cover art. It's sort of quite a strange surrealist painting of me with illustration from the from the, the songs you know, portrayed in the in the painting. So yeah, they they and then from there on into the hands of the collaboration with Stefan and Frank and Marina. So yeah, it's very yeah, important to I think they definitely let's say the Lagoon Blues front cover where there is a picture the picture's taken in Venice and the songs is kind of evoking a an in a way an imagined Venice yeah. sort of Venice and Glasgow somehow it was very, you know, but the, the cover image just perfectly captured what, what the music was striving to. Well, I think it would have been interesting time in Glasgow as well because you had um, your music coming through and as you see the Glasgow boys paintings, um, Stephen Conroy and Harrison and uh, Adrian Vishniski and people like that. There was a, it was a very, culturally, it was a thriving time, I thought. It, absolutely, yeah, it was, it was... Yeah, it was a strange cusp where you know, <clears throat> those, you know, the the seventies are based. Um, I mean, there's these pictures that have had a lot of notice recently. The Raymond Depardong is that pronounced. Yeah. I mean, that is that's the early Glasgow that I remember coming to when my big cousin Frankie used to uh, meet me and take me to to Celtic games. But that was the the journey from Central. We quite often just walked out to the game, and. I, some of those pictures, some of the, the the classic picture of the couple in front of the, you know, it, it looks like a war scene. That great big black tenement, and that's the Glasgow as I first remember it as a, a young teenager. Um, but the change, I think there was some sort of, you know, aspiration to, to create a you know more more of an aesthetic, beautiful world, and, and the Glasgow boys painting was part of that. I think, you know, the, the, you'd have to mention the Blue Nile. Yeah. And the you know the bathers were trying to and I just sort of just to break these stereotypes of you know post industrial decline and try to yeah Glasgow there was a resurgence across you know many art forms and to some extent the the built environment and all the rest of it as well yeah because I was thinking about the songs and the lyrics and what you've obviously you mentioned Kelvin Grove Baby and you've got Angel and Ruskin mm -hmm. you mentioned Ashton Lane gets mentions and um it, but it's Glasgow, for me, it's like Glasgow is a European city first and foremost, rather than, yeah. as you say, yeah. the kind of post-industrial place that perhaps yeah. most people expected. Yeah, I th well, I always had that element, and yeah, I definitely homed in on it. I think, I think the timing was fortuitous. I moved in from, well, friends again. We, as youngsters, youngsters, you know, late teens, early twenties, we spent a lot of time in sort of in, uh, increasingly sort of crappy. Uh, guest houses in London and what have you. So by the time I got managed to get back and settled in Glasgow, um, I moved into from where I grew up, Uddingston, very suburban, yeah, nice enough in its way, but you know, not a city environment at all. I made the classic, you know, sort of suburban pop stars. But we came in and, and I lived in Finiston. It was just just exactly the right sort of part of town, because it had it had both elements of Glasgow really. I loved the the, the crane. Which I can see from my window, which now I'm on the south of the river, I can actually see we're looking almost a mirror image where I stare the, the view I looked at for for about 15 years. I'm now looking the other way. Um, but it had that gritty, but it had the beauty of Park Circus up on the hill, yeah. like a mansion on the hill feel. 
into the West End, as you say, you know, um, Ashton Lane, Crown Circus, all, and I did, you know, was quite very susceptible to the, the, the sense of place in writing those songs, and particularly maybe from, from Sweet Deceit, there was a lot of Glasgow referencing in that because it was just me, I think, discovering that this part of Glasgow, this was feeling sort of at home and very, very excited yeah. to be there, be around those beautiful buildings and the, the whole kind of cultural vibe that was going on. I uh, I saw you play Cotier's Theatre once, and it was one of those occasions where I thought, it's the perfect band in the perfect venue. Yes, yeah, that was that's a fantastic space, yeah. yeah. Doesn't seem to get used as much, I don't know, but the, well, where it is right now, but even, you know, even in prior to this year um, but yeah fantastic space and we'll talk a little bit about friends again you mentioned them because mm. it does seem to mm. be that they are um a hugely influential band perhaps you didn't realize it at the time and perhaps you know it's only now looking back but you had mm. yourself and you had the guys were into loving money but i just think as well the sound the kind of indie pop sound really came to influence a lot of people that came after it you think that's mm -hmm. fair yeah, well, it may, that may be true. It's certainly, I think we were lucky in that we we combined a, a few a few strand a few different strands of musical interest and background in, in a quite a cookie um, dynamic way. Was, I mean, we were we were essentially I was a I was a punk with Neil, my pal from school, bassist. We were you know suburban punks, yeah. but that of course led you to massive Bowie fans, Iggy, Velvets. That everything that was on that side of the the equation. Um, Paul, uh, keyboard player, was um, much more prog rock, Rush, ELP, Long Hair, Pink Floyd. You know, so and then James Grant came into the equation, and he was like a fully formed, unbelievably talented young guitarist. And when he was eighteen or nineteen, we joined that. Maybe just come out of this. I think he'd been basically sitting in his bed bedroom for a number of years absolutely nailing zep you know everything everything going it was all, all the all the classics you know and it so we when those elements take, came together it, it probably did make something uh a bit different you know and uh it, it's good that obviously cherry red put out the album plus all sorts of extras last year and that was just fantastic but i think they were they were pretty amazed at how, how quickly actually sold out the depressive war and that was extremely heartening. Yeah, that is still, still being enjoyed. And it, how do you go from being a band to kind of you form with school friends or friends about that age to getting signed? I mean, it does seem like still quite a. Was there people in Glasgow? You know, I know Glasgow music at the time was really well thought of, and maybe a lot. Yeah. Of up. Uh -huh. Well, that that is that's a good point, and it, it very strange to look back on it. It seemed to happen very very quickly, but. We um, I, we had a guy, I think we were fortunate, and one of our friends in our sort of little Bothwell hangout, we were rehearsing. It was one of the pals, a guy called John Quigley, who's now owns successful restaurants and things like that. He said, "I'll manage you," because John always had a fantastic gift of the cab. And uh, again, that was another piece of the equation. He had the sheer effrontery, and he had a, he had a big sister in London, and we all piled down to Tufnell Park hanging out at the uh, the Camden Palace. So he would go right up to the Boy Georges and the Steve Daggers and Spandau Ballet Gang and, yeah, yeah, have you heard? You've got to hear this. And, friends, and, you know, whether it was absolute 
nonsense or not, but he would come back to us and say, yeah, Boy George loves the demo. <laughs> to this day, we'll never know. But it, it did create a dynamic. So he had that that knack, which I, I certainly completely lacked, of just basically talking your way in through doors and what have you. And uh, so very quickly, I mean, we did benefit from the the amount of A&R interest in the city at the time. And I think the, the postcard scene had massively opened that wide open for, for the guys a year or so down the line, like us coming through. So there was this interest. John tapped into it. He got A and R men up to off the back of the demos, came to see us at night moves, and there was a, a sort of mini bidding war thing. A, a couple of A and R men. A few, a few of our girlfriends were strategically placed to scream at just the right moment. <laughs> so I remember uh, Ash, Ashley Goodall, the A and R guy, was oh, there's even screaming girls. It's wonderful. It's the whole package. <laughs> it's like yeah. They know us. Um, so they worked, and you know, we very quickly got a publishing deal. And then a record, you know, like, right, eight-album deal. And, of course, you know, you don't fully appreciate that it's all subject to the um, the contract being renewed on an album-by-album basis. But, yeah, that was – so we went from being on the dole to, to to getting a – well, it seemed, like, it seemed like a lot of money at the time. And it certainly bought us – got us out of jail for a bit with yeah. you know, parents saying, well, why have you dropped out of uni? <laughs> what are you do, why are you messing about in this outhouse in both all day and night? We did we – did, practiced very hard we yeah we, we were sort of night and day it was great again great it was a gang hut you know we we just played and played and played it was fantastic and am I right in saying when uh, you signed for the bathers it was a solo deal for yourself and then is that right yeah that's right yeah that again, again I, I landed a bit lucky um I, incredibly naively after the friends again split that sort of Initially, the, the phonogram records who kept on the love and money guys, they said, oh, no, we're going to keep everyone on. This is no problem. And I think I did my first little set of demos paid for by them. But then, you know, the hand of bureaucracy said, probably quite rightly, no, hang on. We concentrate on one half of this act. Right. Uh, see you later. So I was on my own, but I'd started what became the first album, self, self-funded, the little bit of publishing money I had coming through. And naively, I just assumed that 4AD would would be, oh, yeah, of course we'll put it out. So I was working with that in mind because they, they did a lot of work with the Cocteau Twins at this Palladium Studios in Edinburgh. And I just thought, oh, you know, they're, they're going to love this. This is the best album ever. So it's quite a healthy way to approach, yeah. approach projects. Really, you just believe it. This is, why would anyone say no to this? But towards the end of the project, I called Ivo Watts Russell at 4AD and I had a lovely conversation, but he made it very clear early on. He said, I don't want you to send me this tape because even if it is the best album in the world, it's physically impossible. Yeah, he was he was up to here with releases scheduled for the next two years. He said, you know, it doesn't matter what you tell me, what I hear, I, I cannot. I was like, oh, okay. A uh, bit slightly shell-shocked, and, you know, whatever it was, four or five grand down, down the Swanee. But... A, a, a friends again fan in London, a lovely, lovely pal, said, look, this is crazy. Um, I'll start touting the demos. And you know, she ended up in a career with uh, Morris Agency PR or something. So mm-hmm. she obviously had what it took as well. So amongst the people she got me to talk to was Andy McDonald at GoDiscs. Yes, yes. He's, I think they dropped the demo in. They said, yeah, we've got to speak to this guy. So he went round and there was uh, Phil Jupiter's who was then known as Pokey the Poet. Uh, yeah, said, I remember, yeah. Andy Madonna's got to hear this. This is fantastic. It was, it was a couple of songs. Really, 
And sure enough, got back to Clapham, my digs in Clapham, and the call, the phone rang, Andy McDonald, when can you come back in? And it was sort of signed to go discs within. Well, it was amazingly easy getting into the deal and amazingly easy getting chucked out of the deal just <laughs> as the album came out. Unfortunately, they had some kind of big breakup with uh, Chrysalis, who were the, the main sort of license partner. And he, and he basically went on to form Independiente shortly after that. But I horribly fell between the cracks there. But we got the album out, you know, and he, he, well, he financed the completion of the album and all that. So another interesting piece of the jigsaw. And the band has kind of an interesting structure in a way because there's been quite a lot of members over the years, a lot of collaboration. Yeah. And is that the way that you've kind of preferred to work? I think so. I do, yeah, I do, I do, you know, I think especially the older you get, you, you know, there's no reason to have an absolutely fixed structure. I mean, there's some very important long-term collaborators, not least Hazel Morrison, a drummer and singer who is just brings such a fantastic energy and talent to, to everything she does. We've got Callum McNair, who's been involved for quite a number of years. Um, and then there's a nice crossover with Neil Clark, who was featured on the Lagoon Blues album from worked with him post-Lloyd Cohn, the commotions. We did the Bloomsday thing together. So, yeah, that, that's good. And obviously Liz Fraser coming in to do Sunpowder. Yeah, it just it seems to work. I don't, I don't, it doesn't seem to be any reason to get too fixed or too hung up about the band structure. Um, and another lovely thing now that I'm working with my old friends again, Buddy Paul McGeekin, yeah. on his Starless albums, that's a lovely kind of completion of the circle as well, where he, the guys that you know, were at BBs together in primary school and from that first band to suddenly be making music again it's just that that's that's but why should that be formalized anyway you know yeah no no he, absolutely yeah. it's just you know a lot of bands they're like um or maybe friends again or like that the last gang in town that all kind of clash thing about you know we, yeah we I'm glad it did it I think it I think it yeah it it certainly suit it suits um yeah it suits the the teenage lifestyle more I suppose and yeah I'm glad I had had the band thing for all its ups and downs I and mean, it wasn't by no means all plain sailing in fact you know the fact we broke up relatively early you know it says it all I suppose but yeah fantastic to have that experience and it did take me a couple of years to adjust to I suppose it being a essentially solo to begin with before mm. long-term collaborators came on board it did feed into the a sense of you know, me against the world, and the first couple of albums particularly were, you know, it's, I mean, James Grant was kind enough to come in and do some lovely backing vocals. Douglas McIntyre came in and did things in the first album, so there were people floating in even at that stage. But it felt, you know, there was no live band. I think yeah. I think Go Disc were keen for me to put a live band together, but it, it's tricky when they they're not saying, well, okay, here's right, you know, here's retainers for everyone, here's. Here's here's the support. It costs a lot of money, and there wasn't money flowing in. So, how do you put a band together? Is is difficult, and I, yeah, it's, it, it sort of worked for me creatively to be that sense of isolation, I suppose, and been feeling slightly alienated from the scene. So it put me a bit outside the, the a lot of what was going on in the eighties. Not that I didn't enjoy much. It was just I, I wasn't at the heart of the scene of the, of the, the bands, the guys who stayed on as bands, uh, you know, Love and Money, Hepsway, they were, you know, it was, there was a band scene there, which I definitely wasn't part of because I was no longer in a band as such. And going back to the Marina trilogy, um, actually, mm. if you think about putting these albums on live, 
it's not that easy to do because they're really lush. There's strings and harmonies and all sorts of things going on. Um, yeah. I, didn't say yeah. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't imagine I'm going to tour this band easily. Very true. That's it. it's a, But it's, a, it's an exciting challenge. I mean, the, the plan was to do do some serious gigs this year, you know, and really try and pull it off, get six or eight string players in the whole the whole bit and, and do it, you know. And to an extent, um, we're, do, we're doing this live stream performance of the Kelvin Grove Baby album end to end. And that's the first time we'll have you know, played, never mind end to end, there's certain songs that have never been played live. And there's a couple of challenging things in there, but, you know, we've got a seven-piece band, no big string section, but we'll, we'll, we'll cover it and hopefully we can, we can do it justice. So um, is that sold out, so to speak? Or is there uh, well, it's the beauty of the virtual world. There is no, there is no yeah, limit. It's sold enough. Yeah. It's sold enough to make sure the band all get paid, which is nice. Now we're just trying to make sure enough to... to the guy that's a professional studio, they're putting it together. So it'd be nice if they ended up covering, you know, the normal rates or something. So we're, we're heading in the right direction. It's, it's, um, and it's, I think it's, it's great for us as a bunch of musicians to actually be able to get together. It's quite a big space. It's a, you know, big enough that you can do it safely and all the rest of it. Um, but it'd be fantastic to, I mean, the rehearsals so far have been on Zoom. Yeah. No, which is, you know, it's more of a case of me listening in to the, the Edinburgh players in a room and it, you know, it sounded great, but I was strumming along, but you've got that time delay when you're not in the same space. So now really, really looking forward to it. And it, I think, yeah, whatever happens, I think it, if as long as we can pull it off musically, it'll absolutely be, have been worth doing. You know, there's a, there's a decent people, amount of people signed up to, to, to watch it, which is, is lovely. So if people are interested, how would they, uh, Find out how to watch it. Uh, well, the it's on the web, the ticket website Book It B. Right. Not that Book It B dot com. If you just search the Bathers Kelvin Go Baby, feeling that uh, you could go to um, the Bathers Facebook page, which I think is quite easy to to get hold of. Um, and it, they, yeah, just follow the link. Basically, I think you, you basically buy a link and you'll be. The link will appear magically in your inbox on Saturday, Saturday midday, and the concert begins at eight o'clock on Saturday evening. So, it should be good. We actually get together to rehearse on Friday in the in the in the studio. So, I'm cautiously confident and optimistic it'll be a really good one. And you mentioned before we started recording that uh, you've just had the most recent um, delivery of vinyl. Yeah, we, we, I'm happy to report that we ha, ha, had to go to a repressing of of the three albums. So the you know I, I was you know it's one of those things. A whole bunch of cardboard boxes arrive, and you you think are these going to be sitting <laughs> <laughs> sitting in the same space a year, ten years from now? But the I've got to say ten out of ten to Bandcamp as a way of artists directly connecting with with the, um, an audience. Yeah. Because you just, I was able to say, okay, we release it now. People are just buying it, getting it the next day in many cases for, direct from me. So it financially makes a huge, huge difference. And I think I could safely see these albums have now recouped, <laughs> which they didn't necessarily do first time around. Um, as we sort of went a bit over the top on the budget, but that's a nice feeling that it feels very direct. I like the sense of connection to. Yeah. Um, but to a certain extent, things like Bandcamp are helping to 
just make it easier for for the artist to do their I, own thing. That's right. And also buying direct from labels as well. I think that kind of, yeah, that, that seems to be, people seem to be waking up to that rather than, unfortunately, yeah. shops just don't carry the kind of stock that you would hope, I would think. Yeah, yeah, it's just... It's a shame, but I mean, there are some fantastic shops, monorail and things. If that's a cold, it's a great, you know, it's a great vibe in, in there. And um, there's a lot of really good, meaty, obscure stuff. I, mean, I know that has a global reputation. And my friends in America who seek that out when they, they come over. In fact, the guys in Marina, oh, I love that shop. Yeah. You know, it's yeah, a good shop, a, a good shop. And it's a, there's still a few of them around still, which is a wonderful thing. So, Am I right in saying that 2001's Desire Regained was the last studio album you did? Uh, yeah, you are. Yeah, bizarre as it, it seems, yes. That was a... Uh, yeah, and then I, I, I've i continued to do a lot of music, mostly kind of writing and playing for my own my own interest. Yeah. Um, I, I tried to get improve my piano. I tried to just kind of up my repertoire, as they would call it, just learning a few, a few more classical pieces. And by doing that, you just... You find your you find your facility to try and achieve your own ideas becomes uh, easier, and of course in the course of that, you know you're always taking away you kind of write a song, and fortunately for me, Paul McGeekin approached me for the Starless thing. He said, "Look, would you be interesting?" I can't remember if he said interested in doing a vocal, but it very quickly became that we're going to work on a on a, on some songs together and and. Very happily, uh, Misty Nights was using his first album. And we, we wrote another one called Spellbound for the recent Starless album and re- revisited a song called Calvary from the Friends Again demos, which hadn't made the cut. We had to kind of, I think it was only at best half written, but we kept all the good bits. And I think it sounds great. And it's taken a long time in the gestation. And been working on a new Bathers album. Uh, it was all set to go about four years ago, but it, I just decided it wasn't quite right and went back to the drawing board. And now it's, it is feeling quite right. It's feeling, you know, cautiously saying the best yet. As in my, my family always teased me about that phrase, was everything's the best yet. That's pizza's the best. <laughs> you know what I mean? You said, yeah, you've got to believe that. You've got to believe Absolutely. that. Absolutely. <laughs> no, no, I really do believe this is it's signing. Though I say so myself, I think it sounds fantastic. So I'm incredibly excited. I'm, I'm, my aim is to complete that by the recording side and mixing by Christmas, which it really means we could be looking at a release in the spring, an Easter time release, which would be a long time coming, but we'll get there. Well, I mean, I think one of the side effects of the Marina Trilogy coming out and people discovering it or rediscovering it for themselves is there will be appetite for, for brand new material. So I can't wait to hear that. Uh, well, good. Glad to hear it. Yeah. I would like to say there's a master plan and, and it might, with hindsight, it will probably look that way, hopefully. <laughs> you know, sometimes the pieces just, you ride your luck. And uh, it, yeah, certainly if I can achieve the goal of getting out next spring, there's definitely been a, a big revival of interest in the Marina. It's just lovely to see that set of albums getting listened to again or, and or re-evaluated in, in the, the new edition. It's just, yeah. yeah. absolutely. It sets the scene very nicely for uh, for the new one. Well, they're, they're three of my favourite albums. I just adore them. Ah, um, that's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Chris, thanks so much for talking to me today. It's been an absolute no, pleasure. Pleasure, Alistair. Yeah, a joy. 
And we'll be back soon with someone completely different. Cheers. Mm -hmm.